Hopefully you guys have your Bibles open to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'm going to jump right into this. We've got a lot to cover here this morning. Um, we've been in the series in the Gospel of John, just kind of making our way through this, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, letting John tell us the story. His name's uh, John the Beloved apostle. He's kind of telling us his rendition of what he remembers about the life of Jesus. It's powerful. It's awesome. Uh, what we're going to be looking at here today is a story that's commonly known as Jesus and the woman of Samaria, or at least that's what my Bible heading says. Uh, yours might say something along those lines, but this is a very lengthy passage. It, we're not going to read ent- the entirety of it. It's basically a two-part series with an introduction. Uh, it'll span basically 45 verses. We're just going to look at the first like half of that. Uh, you're welcome. So we're going to just look at the introduction, and then we're going to look at basically scene one of this. And the way I want to do this is we're just going to read it bit by bit. Let John narrate the story for us. I'll make some comments as we go through, and uh, I'm going to conclude with just some final summary thoughts, and, and that'll, that'll be it. We'll just trust the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit do. Let me pray one more time as we jump into this morning. So, God, again, as we turn our hearts uh, to the story, God, we need a story to uh, sink our teeth into. We need a story to, uh, to influence our lives that's different than the story we constantly see on our news feeds. Uh, we acknowledge that the stories that we constantly see on the news feed just lead us and leave us in a place of despair and desperation and brokenness and pain and loss and grief. And God, we need a new story, a story of this gospel to just influence and wash and help us to catch our breath to then move forward in this world uh, to become the people that you invite us to become. God, so that we would be those people that would fully love you, love our neighbor, and be an active agent of goodness in this world. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys ready? Let's do it. All right. John chapter 4, pick it up at verse 1. I'm going to have the passages up on the screen. You can follow along. Uh, Before we even jump in, sorry, I I had a question I wanted to lead with. Are you guys ready for a question? All right, here we go. I got a question for you. Uh, If it doesn't make sense, just let me me say it. All right, let's, let's suppose... That which you turn to quench your inner thirst for purpose, meaning, and identity are sources of water. Okay, so just follow me on this. Let's just suppose, let's play a game of hypothetical. Let's suppose that what you so most often feed upon to feed your soul is a body of water. Here's the three different types of bodies of water I'm envisioning. Number one, sewage water. All right, you can laugh and have fun with the little emojis. Uh, Sewage water. And I think of sewage water as being like a pond, a marsh, a well. There's no movement. It's infested with insects, bacteria, algae. The second body of water is sewage water. All right, so the first one is stagnant water, and the second is sewage water. This is perhaps, might have high levels of movement. Imagine, like, in the past couple weeks, we had... I don't even know how many gallons of water that was going off, run off into the ocean. Uh, you're not supposed to surf when it gets that bad. Some people do. I've heard people get really nasty earaches. It's nasty. Don't do that. It's really bad. Or dysentery. That's not good either. But the point of the matter is sewage water. You might have high levels of movement or stagnation. But with that, there's this sense of lifelessness, stench, and waste. It's just, you know, you get the idea, waste. Got your nice little emoji there. All right. Um, and then lastly, I envision spring water. Spring water. This has direction, has movement. There's life. Um, we see this idea of fresh water that flowed from a spring or a stream. It was known throughout the Bible as 
living water throughout Palestine, throughout this ancient part of the world. In fact, it was a, a very desertous region. Um, in order for things to live or flourish or thrive, or if you were going to have a garden or even create a civilization, uh, you needed some form of a body of water, a moving body of water that was living water, not stagnant, not sewage. Um, and as a result of that, Jesus uses this as an analogy that we're going to re- read about here today. So again, with all this in your mind, I want you to think about what what water system typically do you go to feed off of and try to survive? Which one would you most liken your life to being attached to? So just hold on to that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just think about this in the story that we're going to read here. So ready? Let's jump in. Verse 1, chapter 4, it starts like this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. It says in verse 3 that he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside a well, and it was about the sixth hour. So we're given a lot of data and details I just want to really quickly think about. Before I jump into that, um, some of you guys woke up this morning praying that you would have a map here on the screen. So you're welcome. Shazam, you got a map. So I want to just think about this map real quick because this is, I think this is helpful, at least it's helpful for me. Um, but so I don't know how well you can see this, but um, if you see that green line right there, that's the line that Jesus took. The red line is the line that tip, people would typically take. So uh, go to the very top. You see uh, that body of water that's up there. Um, it's called Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee. That would have been a region where Jesus did the majority of his ministry. Go down the map to this other body of water in the middle. Uh, it's called the Dead Sea. Um, over to the, I guess your you're left of that. You see a region of Judea. That'd be like where Jerusalem's at. So Jesus basically walked back and forth between these two regions. And again, it's pretty pretty lengthy uh, span of space. Um, but Jews back in that day would never, ever pass through Samaria, um, which for reasons we'll get into in just a moment here. They just, there was this cultural animosity that was had been brewing for many decades and centuries and generations. Um, and, and yet Jesus tells his disciples, we need to kind of move from one region to the next, and we are not going to take the typical route of going around, which was really far, this path. They had to cross over the Jordan River and then cross back over the Jordan River again to get to their destination. It was extremely far out of the way. But that's what you do if you have, if you want to avoid conflict or avoid somebody that you don't really like, you kind of go the exact, op- and you don't really care about that. You, just, you, you count the costs. It's like, I will avoid them at all costs, and I will go way around. But Jesus does not do that. He goes straight through this particular region that's typically avoided, which for the reason we'll find out in just a moment here. Um, one other thing I'll just kind of point out that I thought was uh, worthwhile, we'll kind of recap this in the end. Verse 6, it says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour typically is a reference to around 12 noon. So this would have been the heat time of the day. Again, they lived in the uh, wilderness or the desert area. So typically from noon all the way to three would have been the hottest time of the day. That being said, one thing I want you to think about, in fact, if you don't have a problem with writing in your Bible, I would underline this little phrase right here. It says, weary, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. I just want you to pause and think about this. Jesus wearied from his journey. Anyone feel wearied from 
journey of life. Anybody have gone through any season, any length of time, any period of sickness, any period of uh, rapid fire wounding and pain and hardship and trauma, and you're just tired. You just want to give up. You just want to throw in the towel. You're, You're just exhausted. You just need to sit and catch your breath. Jesus can relate. Just pause and think about that. Jesus can relate. It's a little detail that John tells us about the humanity of Jesus, the God-man, both God and man. Now, next I want to jump into verse 7 as we make our way through this. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. So another detail, another character plays into the story. This time, the character is a woman who happens to be from the region of Samaria. She comes out to draw water. And then Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away. And again, this is kind of a parenthetical statement that John tells us, just in case you're paying attention. He wants you to know that the disciples are not there. They left Jesus. They went into one of the cities to go buy some food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman then said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And for the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So again, John tells us this little parenthetical statement, just in case you and I are culturally oblivious with which probably most of us are because we don't understand the animosity that was preexistent there so john wants to make sure that we catch this so again what's going on here we got to in order for us i think to really rightly understand what's happening here we have to understand the word taboo taboo everyone say taboo you don't have to say it. it's fine i hate it don't you hate it when pastors do that like say the word you know i'm not going to be that guy so anyways taboo we're going to talk a little bit about taboo what is a taboo and why is it significant now this is not obviously where that's in the text, but it's there in terms of like substance. It's there in actuality. So these, this woman had a cultural taboo against the likes of Jesus, and the likes of Jesus, meaning a male Jew, had a tab, had taboo idea about the likes of the Samaritan woman. So what is a taboo? A taboo actually comes from a word that means prohibited or disallowed or something that is forbidden. That's what a taboo is. In some cases, it can be a, a positive thing where it's like you don't touch or play with this particular thing because it's sacred. So in that sense, it's a taboo in a positive light. Most of the time, we get it, the idea in terms of a negative. You avoid something. In our culture, we have lots of things that are taboo to talk about. There are certain things that we recognize. It's just simply taboo. You don't do that. You don't go that route. You don't entertain that. You don't post that on social media. You don't act that particular way. It's simply taboo. We all have that. And uh, they, they change and they shift throughout time. Back in the time when Jesus lived, back in the time when John was telling us this story, we see a cultural taboo that's going on here. It's, it's worthy for us to make note of because the woman even draws attention to this. She, again, says, uh, why are you a Jew who are talking to me? You're asking me information. And this highlights something that's going on here. Now, back in that particular day, the Samaritans, I think it's worthy just kind of pausing and thinking about who are the Samaritans and why was this a taboo type of relationship that was going on here. Um, I'm just going to read you a little segment that came from a study Bible. It says this, uh, when Israel fell to Assyria in around 722 BC, there were many that were taken in exile, but others remained in the land and Assyria, what the Assyrian nation, what they would typically do, they would bring in mixed multitudes of outsiders, people that were foreigners to the particular region, and they would force them to intermarry with those that were the inhabitants of the land. And there's a reason for that. The big idea was to basically not only demoralize the people that lived there, 
I mean, imagine if you were Jewish living in that particular region in the town, um, and you had a deep uh, or a high level of, of national pride and cultural pride and religious pride, which Jews, we know, did. Um, Im- imagine being subjugated by another entity or force or uh, oppressive uh, culture, and they bring in these outsiders, and they're like, you have to have sex and commingle and create kids from this group that's coming in from the outside. You, you know that what's going to happen over the next generation or generations is your entire culture will be either lost or be diluted. And that's exactly what happened, was that's the, the, the culture that lived in that Samaritan, uh, Samaritan region basically took upon itself a form of Judaism that became radically distinct or different from the Judaism that was in the broader region of Judea. Uh, these people came to be known as Samaritans, religious group of people that was kind of a mixed population, and they ultimately lost their cultural values as they had them. A couple other layers to this that are important. Uh, women back in the day, it's important to even think about uh, the, the role of a woman in that particular first century. Again, uh, women have made radical strides, especially if you are a woman, obviously, living in today's culture. It's easy to look at the world and feel that there's so much we don't have. However, I say we, um, um, y- y- women don't have. But the fact of the matter is women have made incredible strides, or especially even in the past 50 to 100 years, more so than throughout almost most of Western civilization radical strides of freedom and growth and liberation. But back in the day when Jesus lived, uh, for the most part, there was a tendency for women to be avoided or, or for women to not have any form of interaction, especially if you were a rabbi or a teacher, or a religious teacher, you would avoid and not have direct contact or, or conversation with a woman unless it was your, your wife or your child. And so Jesus kind of breaks this taboo where he actually engages in conversation with her. Uh, not only that, but Jesus, a Jew, a Judean Jew, is having direct dialogue with the Samaritan Jew. And that, again, is another cultural layer of uh, taboo that Jesus is breaking. But another thing I think that's important to think about with regard to women back in the first century is that they were a vulnerable population um, in that culture. And it's one of the reasons why, within that culture, they oftentimes were married or their identity was deeply affixed to uh, their marriage partner. And not only that, but they would have many children. And the whole point of that is that there was a productive role that a woman had in society. And this is one of the reasons why, if a woman in the first century was not able to bear children, it was deeply a disgrace that she would bear upon herself. And it may even play into the very story here as to why this woman had multiple wives or multiple husbands. It's possible. The story doesn't tell us, but we, we do know throughout the other parts of the biblical account that if a woman was not able to bear children, she was oftentimes viewed with disdain and in some cases even divorced. And again, we, we cringe at that, and we should cringe at that because it's a horrible thing. And God never, ever, uh, that was never his intention, but it was what happened in the culture. Again, it's really easy for us to to slip into what C.S. Lewis describes as chronological snobbery, where we can look at another part of culture and throughout history and kind of snub it. Um, But we have our own issues that we have to look at. And probably 100 years from now, uh, people writing the history books, 100 years from now will look at us today and our culture living in San Luis Obispo in California and be like, I can't believe they did X, Y, and Z. We just can't see it now because we are so surrounded by it. It's just part of the culture, part of the norm that we just are not even aware of. Okay, so that being said, is that Jesus is having dialogue and conversation with this particular gal. And so, as a result of that, 
uh, it kind of leads now into verse 10. So let's keep reading the story. And then Jesus answered her. You know, again, she asked him, you know, why are you having a conversation with me? You are a Jew. I'm a woman. I'm Samaritan, so on and so forth. And Jesus then answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is talking to you, you would say to him, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman then said to him, sir, I have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he gave us this well to drink from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And then Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I have given him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman then said to him, sir, please give me some of this water so that I might not be thirsty to have to come here to draw water. What's fascinating about this is that she acknowledges, obviously, something of this thirst. Jesus also acknowledges something of her thirst. And he kind of plays into this. Sometimes Jesus speaks um, in, in mysteries. And this is kind of one of those moments where he talks about, I got water uh, for you to drink of. And what's he talking about? It seems esoteric. It seems a little bit off base. What's he referring to? But Jesus oftentimes talked in these type of parabolic type of statements. And what I think Jesus is trying to allude to is this Old Testament history of water that is life-giving. And he's actually making this radically bold claim. He's saying, I am the living water. You drink from me and what I offer, what I give, you will never thirst again. It's a pretty bold claim if you think about, obviously, what Jesus is saying. It's one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis would later come forth and say, look, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. He cannot be all three simultaneously. So it behooves us to really think carefully, in some cases even critically, uh, about what is Jesus trying to convey here. He's making this bold claim that he alone is this life-giving source, and she is in desperate need of life. This is kind of a crazy reality that Jesus touches into, but all human beings, and we know this as human beings, we have this existential void. We're aware of this, and in other words, we, we are aware of this sense that there's something lacking inside of us. And we're longing to have it filled. And we turn to all sorts of sources to try to find. Most of those sources are either going to be ending up stagnant water or sewage water. Because that's what's available to us. That's what is on tap. That's what's there. And we turn to it and we find ourselves still thirsty. Still never being able to fully reach that sense of undoing the restlessness that is deep within our souls. Apart from God, it's this idea that our lives are absurd accidents. Apart from God. Apart from God instilling meaning and purpose and value and identity within us. As human beings, we are not okay with just simply being not okay. And, and the odd thing is, within our culture, we have sort of this narrative that's like, it's okay to be not okay. It's okay to just be you. And there's something that does not simply sit right with it, all of us on that. As much as we want to believe that, we also recognize we keep fighting and striving for better or getting uh, more advanced in what we're capable of doing and improving ourselves and striving beyond where we're currently at. We recognize that there's something more in life for us. And so we are thirsty 
we're constantly trying to satiate this deep longing and thirst that's inside of us, just like this woman was. And it's this idea that we oftentimes see, this essence of life, that really guys like Nietzsche and Kafka and Camus have all written about, again, as I mentioned, this sort of existential void that is there preeminent within our lives, that Jesus is saying, I've come to satisfy. I've come to take care of that. But what ends up happening is that we have to, first of all, acknowledge that it's there, that we're in need, and that Jesus is saying, I've come to give this and to deliver this to you. And he's, whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. That as humans, we have this insatiable thirst, and yet every other source that we oftentimes tap into and imbibe in will always leave us burdened with guilt, shame, anxiety, depression, and restlessness. And more so than ever in our culture, which is kind of shocking because we have more available to us at our fingertips than ever before in human history. And yet, anxiety and depression are all-time highs. How do we define that? We have more freedoms in America than we've ever had. We're capable of creating more things than we've ever been able to be capable of creating things. Technology is more accessible than it's ever been. Communication is at a, is a, I mean, I FaceTime with my daughter and my new grandson, which is like nuts. I'm like watching him interact with their dog and just, it's like, what's going on here? Like, this is the world we live in. It's amazing. This stuff is at our fingertips right now. And yet more than ever, culture is wrestling with anxiety and depression. Why? There's a thirst. And it's not being quenched. There's more to distract us today than ever before. So we were able to take this anxiety, this space of pain and loss and restlessness. We're able to kind of like put it under a rug and ignore it because there's all these other things. But then that only leads us to this cycle of boredom where we're just bored. Life is not fulfilling. We've lost all sense of meaning. We're lost contact with purpose. And again, like I said, we are we are meaning junkies. We need to have meaning and purpose in life. And if we don't have that, we find ourselves in this cycle of just pain and loss. So what Jesus does is he speaks to this guy. He says, listen, I have come, and what I offer you is living water. And you drink of me, and you will never thirst again. Reading on his story, verse 16, it says, And Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And then Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now right now is not your husband. And what you have said is true. And the woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem, in this place, uh, where people ought to worship. Now, I want to point out, um, I recently read a commentary that gave me a whole different angle that I want to just talk about real quickly about on this. So Jesus in this dialogue basically kind of shifts the conversation a little bit and he kind of points out some stuff that's going on in our life. There's no way that Jesus would have known this apart from divine revelation. So he, what we would call sort of a, a, a prophetic word that Jesus speaks for. He's just like, hey, go bring your, your husband to me, which is, would not have been an uncommon or odd thing to have said. Again, within that culture, uh, then she basically points out that, you, you know, you're right. I, I don't have a husband. I've had 
5, and she's, uh, he, she's, she's acknowledging the things that, that Jesus is, is communicating to her. Um, and she acknowledges that, man, what you're saying is a prophet. Which we'll, I'll get to that in two seconds here. But the point that I want to make is this, uh, the traditional view is that what Jesus is doing is he's basically drawing attention to her sin. That she is sinful. That, in other words, somehow the fact that she's had five hundred husbands and the one that she's currently with, either living with or you know, uh, you know, living with uh, in this uh, extramarital type of relationship, whatever. Again, there's certain things I think that may potentially be read into the text. But the net takeaway is that what Jesus is doing is he's putting his finger on her sin in order to kind of bring about a sense of like, ah, yeah, you're right. Kind of forcing the or impressing the weight of the law upon her so that she would then repent. And turn to Jesus. That's one way to think about it. That's very common. In fact, many of us have probably heard sermons along those lines. Uh, the net result is Jesus is trying to bring about conviction uh, by drawing attention to her sin. That's one possible way of thinking about this. This alternative way that I heard uh, was really fascinating to me. I'll throw it to you for your own consideration. Again, it's just more of an interpretive uh, way of reading the text. This second way is that, again, the context of this is she's living in this particular region of Sikar. Which we're already told in the story, John tells us, this is, this is a place where there was a well that Jacob, if you remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob was a pretty well-known, renowned guy in the, Jew, uh, the, the Jewish hierarchy, right? The Jewish patriarchy. Uh, he's a well-known guy. He had a son by the name of Joseph. Um, and we're told, John tells us, that this area was actually given to Joseph, and there's a well that was built there. And Joseph had access to this. So if you're familiar at all with the story of Joseph, you know that Joseph was a guy that had gone through a tremendous amount of suffering in the land of Egypt at the hands of other people. He suffered, in other words, under the hands of other people. And as a result of that, he was swept up into this redemptive story of God. And so what this alternative way of thinking about it is that perhaps another way of thinking of this is that Jesus, rather than putting his finger upon her sinful background and life activity, perhaps he's actually identifying the fact that she has gone through tremendous suffering. And he's acknowledging it. Like, I know what you've gone through. I see it. You're not alone. God's aware. That that story would have resonated with her because it would have been the story of Joseph. That Joseph, no matter how Horribly he suffered. God was with him. And God saw him. And God intervened in his life and took care of him. And perhaps that's what Jesus is doing here. So in that particular interpretive vein, it's Jesus not drawing attention to her background or backstory as a sinful means of causing her into a forced conversion. Um, again, there's there's... Problems to that because if she then goes in the town, which she ends up later doing, all the entire town comes out because of her story. That'd be odd if she was kind of a quote unquote shady woman and of, of ill repute. Like, who's going to believe the shady woman of ill repute? Not many people. But if she was a woman that everybody knew the type of pain and the hardship that she had, and then she meets Jesus, the one who knows everything about her life, she has this sense of influence where she brings people to the point of the matter is is i think the way that this shifts the story a little bit is that it turns jesus from a guy who's just out there trying to like manipulate through some sort of spiritual judo uh the 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 weight of the law to a god that says i know the pain and the suffering that has come your way and i see it and i acknowledge it 
and I'm here to do something about it. So, lastly, as we kind of finish up this little segment, it says, verse 21, Then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain. So again, she starts this conversation about uh, religion. You know, and some have said that she's just sort of uh, diverting uh, the attention away from herself to religion. Again, that's a possibility. Or what she's doing is she's acknowledging her own taboos because, again, she's, she's Samaritan. Samaritans don't have any dealings with Jewish people. So she's got her own taboos she's working through. So here's, here's the beauty of the story. She's crossing over her taboos and making space in her life to trust Jesus. And Jesus is overcoming the taboos, entering into her life, making space to invite her in. So what you see here are, are two people who've got these cultural taboos, and Jesus obviously doesn't, but Jesus lives in the culture, people that does, that, that he's, they're dismantling these things because Jesus cares about people and because this is an act of faith where she's overcoming obstacles that are there in order to make space for Jesus. That's what discipleship is, guys. I got news for you. To follow Jesus in our culture means you have to clear out rubble alternative stories, narratives that don't synchronize with who God is. You have to at some point recognize there are ideas, thoughts, ideologies, stories, narratives that we have come to believe because we just live within these things that will have to be dismantled and removed and reconstructed by way around the gospel. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus will be this way. Unless you die, take up your cross, You cannot be my disciple, which means there will have to be an act where we die to certain ideas and thoughts and desires and emotions and feelings and things that we feel belong to us and we lay claim to. And Jesus says, no, what discipleship is, is you overcome those things that culture promises you and guarantees you and makes spaces. This is yours. We come to a place of saying all of that as Wonderful as it sounds, is rubbish in the eyes of the gift of Jesus. The living water that he gives. Uh, To finish up this little segment here, verse 21 says, Then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You will worship You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So again, what Jesus does as well, he's a a truth speaker. He's not going to lie to her. He's not going to be like, hey, all paths lead to God. Your path leads to God. My path leads to God. He actually dismantles that. Again, it's very proper in our culture today. Just kind of adopt this mindset. Like, we don't want to be the oppressive person that's going to hurt other people's feelings. So we we oftentimes want to cultivate lies. Jesus doesn't do that, but he, he's not a jerk either about it as well, right? Again, there, there is a way to speak truth without being a jerk. Sometimes our brand of evangelicalism doesn't really do that well, and in fact, I would even say has done it horribly. But the fact of the matter is Jesus speaks truth and says, listen, your way of understanding who God is is, is, is improper. But nonetheless, he also recognizes that worship one day is not going to be on Mount Gerizim, which is what they believe, nor is it going to be on Mount Zion, meaning uh, locally connected to Israel. It will be in spirit. And there's something happening here in the passage that we oftentimes can easily miss, where he says it's not in Mount Gerizim, and it's not in Mount Zion. It will be in the spirit. Three words that kind of signify 
where all this is moving, which I think in summary shows that there's a transcending of location, tribe, ethnicity, expanding outward to all, that God's aim is to reach the whole world, which means at some point this thing that Jesus launched has to break out of its cultural connection to the Middle East. And this is what ends up happening is it goes global. You and I are sitting here today, 2,000 years later in America, and it's really easy in our culture to be like, well, Christianity is like a white man's religion. Says who? That's ridiculous. It's, I mean, yes, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. There have been movements that have hijacked it and just rebranded it and has distorted it. But Christianity has always begun in the Middle East, but it was not exclusive to that. It broke out of that, and it's for the whole world. You know the fastest growing churches in the world are not even white Western nations? You know it's, it's, it's like Latin America, it's China, it's Iran, it's Africa. Those are the fastest places that the church is growing in the world today. It's amazing. We, we get to join this incredible movement that God began. So I'm done. I'm going to wrap it up with some final summary thoughts, and, I'm, and I'll, I'll let you all go. Listen, I'm going to go through these real quick, rapid fire round. Number one, that couple takeaways I think about, number one is Jesus, this God man, as I mentioned earlier, gets tired and weary. As I mentioned earlier, he understands the exhaustion and the pain. So let that be something that you can walk away with and consider, no matter what type of circumstances you're going through. Jesus gets it. He's been through it. Second thing is I see that following Jesus oftentimes doesn't make sense. <laughs> and it's oftentimes filled with disruptions or detours. It would make more sense to avoid Samaria altogether. Why? It's taboo area. You don't go there. It's just not the space you go. But Jesus doesn't care about taboos. Jesus cares about people. He'll violate taboos in order to go into those places that have needs. And what I would recommend is the best thing for you and I is to just follow Jesus. It's really easy for us to find ourselves going throughout our day and be like, this is a disruption, this is a distraction. Maybe it's actually not a disruption or a distraction that's intended to destroy you. Maybe that is something that God placed there so that you can enter into it and discover his grace pouring through you into the life of another human being. Uh, thirdly, Jesus cares about all human pain and suffering. This becomes pretty obvious in the story. It doesn't matter who. Fourthly, Jesus doesn't hesitate. These cultural taboos, as I already mentioned. And then lastly, there's uh, this two thoughts I just want to leave you with. is this radical inclusivity of Jesus. All are welcome. But also this radical exclusivity of Jesus. As he says, I alone am the living water. He doesn't say living water is available everywhere. Just go tap into it. Find it. Discover it. It's all in your inner self. No, he says there, there's one source of this fountainhead. And it's me. It's radically inclusive. And the, exclusive, I should say. The point that I think Jesus is trying to communicate is that, yes, life is out there, but there's also all sorts of imposters to life. There's also all forms of parodies and satire that look like life, but they're really just a cartoon character. Or they promise much, but they always fail to deliver in the end. So, again, going back to the, this original question, what source are you consistently drawing from? And where is it leading you? My invitation to all of us to really consider the claims of Jesus and to recognize that what Jesus gives us is not just simply rules to live by. He gives us himself. Not just a gift, 
if you want to think of it this way, as a culture, we deeply want the kingdom that God offers. But as a culture, not the king. Jesus says you cannot have the kingdom apart from the king. They come as a package. Jesus says the life I give you, I am the both life giver and I am the life gift itself. Life comes as a package through finding me. That's disturbing for many of us because we would far much more prefer a list of do's and don'ts. Give me the list. I'll follow that list. I'll do the best that I can. But that's not what Jesus gives us. He says, I give you myself to know me, to be known by me, to have relationship with me, to follow me, to die in this life, to take up your life in this life, to discover all that I have for you. This is what Jesus offers. I want to invite us all to stand. I'm going to close. And I want to pray for us as we wrap this up. God, we thank you for the gift that you give us of yourself. We need you. We acknowledge the fact that in some cases we actually would prefer distraction because it keeps us safe and protected and insulated. And yet, God, what we need more than anything is really just all of that broken down so that we can recognize our deep need and recognize the fact that you see our pain and our hardship and our difficulties that we go through and traumas that we face and we are currently facing. And yet you love us and you invite us into this place of having a relationship with you, of being known by you, being radically swept up in this relationship of being a part of what you're doing in this world. God, we need your help. And I pray right now for anybody in this room that needs to turn to you right now this morning, God, that you would move in their heart faith, confession of their sin, and trust and confidence in who you are. So God, the rest of us, all of us, as we scatter, empower us, Lord, to really be part of this kingdom work that you're doing here on the Central Coast and beyond, to be agents of goodness and love and kindness everywhere we go. Not in our strength, but in the strength that you give us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.